Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. Before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, psychic and um, also uh, Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Stephen G. Post, and he has written some really interesting books. Um, I know that I have one of them up here, which is called God in Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Connectedness. Thanks for coming on, Stephen. Nice to be with you, Gary. Um, how many books do you have out? I only showed two on Amazon, but it says that there's another one. It looks like. I'm not too sure. No. I couldn't hear it. There's a little uh, feedback there. Oh, sorry about that. Oh, I was asking how many books do you have out right now? Oh, uh, ones that I consider to be particularly worthwhile, three. Three. It's interesting. Amazon only has two. I don't know why. It's missing one. Hmm. Well, uh, the first would be why good things happen to good people, how to live a healthier, happier, longer life through the simple act of giving. And that goes back to about 207, but it was a successful um, positive psychology book. Um, and uh, and then the next one is God and Love on Route 80, which is about synchronicity, about uh, a spiritual journey uh, as a kid that shaped my life and taught me a lot about ultimate reality. And then the next one isn't actually quite out yet, Gary. It's coming out in May of this year with Johns Hopkins Press, and it is called Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. Because I've worked for about 30 years in the context of Alzheimer's families and communities and written a lot of things. Uh, and this is definitely uh, uh, the one that I feel strongest about. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so what um, motivated you to write uh, your first book? We'll start with that one. You know, good things happen to good people. I think the question a lot of people typically ask is why bad things happen to good people. <laughs> well, they sure as heck do happen. To, they happen to everybody. And uh, depending on your perspective, uh, they're inevitable because nobody gets out of life alive. So even in hard times, even when things don't appear to be going well, if you navigate through those stretches by kindness and giving behaviors, you will do better. We did a study of widows and widowers and showed they were happily married. That's important, happily married. 
and uh, now they're dealing with a lot of emptiness in their hearts. They get through a period of bereavement and grief more quickly and in a more enduring manner if they can self-report that they're just helping people in the neighborhood or volunteering uh, at some local organization. So I got a call from the New York Society of Widows and Widowers. There is such a thing. And they are having a, a conference in Manhattan uh, at the Marriott Hotel. And I came in, I gave a talk. There were quite a few people there. And at the end, uh, after I mentioned that giving will help you feel happier, it will limit your susceptibility to depression, uh, it will make you more resilient, it will do a lot of different things, including give you the so-called helper's high. Um, a guy in the back of the room was frantically waving his arms, and he said, I don't believe anything you're saying, buddy, because I don't do nothing for nothing. <laughs> and there wasn't much I could say, but he was really into the sort of, uh, you know, pay me back right now or else. Right. I'm not going to be a sucker. But there were all these internal benefits that he would have experienced if he had just let go of those ideas a bit and been more free. You know, as they say, play it forward. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so what is it about giving back to other people when you're going through a hard time that causes, a, uh, that helps the person out? Like how does helping other people help me? Well, because when you are perhaps bitter and angry about situations, you have a lot of stress. There are a lot of negative emotions associated with those frustrations. And so when you want to get free of the self and typically the problems of the self, the best way to do that is uh, to just contribute to the lives of others. And it doesn't take a lot of time. We did a study, a national survey that was supported by United Healthcare, the managed care system, this was in the beginning of 2010. I just gotten here from Cleveland. And we did a study of 5,000 adult Americans. And we asked them very simply, did you volunteer in 2009? Okay, 41% had volunteered. We asked, how long did you volunteer? On average, it was 100 hours a year. And if you want to, you can roughly break that down. It's a couple of hours a week. Then we asked them, did it make you feel happier? 90%, yes. Did it make you feel more resilient in dealing with hardships and adversity? Same thing, 90%. Did it make you feel physically healthier? About 70% said yes. They felt more energized and robust. Um, did it help you with relationships? About 80% said, yeah, my friendships became deeper. My friends were the people who were working with me in this volunteer program. It could be the Alzheimer's Association or whatever. Um, and they, they kind of helped me discover my better self. And, um, and then, you know, uh, did it help you sleep? Did you sleep better? Yeah, about 75% said it helped me to sleep better. So there you have it. That's pretty impressive. 
and you don't have to go to the drugstore and pick up uh, uh, a, a pharmacological uh, chemical or device. Um, you just have to get out of yourself and find that sort of animation that comes when you, in kindness, help out another human being. Hmm. So does this have to be volunteer work or could it be something else? Like, like for example, I recently, you know, went through a divorce, lost my home, all that kind of stuff. I moved back here to New Jersey. And since I moved back here, I picked up a job helping disabled adults. I mean, I get paid for doing it. I work in a group home. Um, and, uh, but, you know, th does that kind of count is what you're talking about? Or does it have to no. be, you know, like, you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen? Oh, there, 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 there's no one shoe that fits all. You know, um, this particular study we do was looking at volunteering, however people volunteered. But you could also look at just informal helping behavior. Um, you, um, you, people help in many different ways. Uh, and, and so um, the main point is that help in an area where you feel motivated um, it's important to be doing something that you feel is meaningful. And also, if you have an opportunity, debrief with your peers, with your colleagues, and talk about how this experience uh, feels for you. That can be helpful, too. But, yeah, you can do anything you want, uh, including, by the way, in a nice study that came out of the NIH some years ago by Jorge Moll, a neuroscientist. He just took people off the street and he gave them a menu that listed about 20 different kinds of charities that they could contribute to. They weren't actually out there helping, but just things you could contribute to. Your local hospital, um, the local group home, whatever it might be, uh, your alma mater. And when people check the box next to that item that kind of lit their fire, they had PET scan devices on. A part of the brain got active, and it's called, I hope your listeners don't feel they have to write this down, the mesolimbic pathway, <laughs> which is a very deep part of the emotional brain. And it's the part of the brain that makes people feel relatively tranquil and serene and also doles out at least one of the four major uh, happiness chemicals, uh, dopamine. So there's an actual physiological mechanism and it's understandable, you know, if you're thinking about it in terms of human evolution, because we evolved in groups. Sometimes we forget that because we're taught so much about individual behavior and, you know, you're flying on your own. But even Darwin at the end of his life said most evolution occurs between groups and group A has advantages over group B to the extent that people are kind to each other, helpful to each other, looking after one another, doing good things. Uh, and so uh, uh, no matter what sort of a society we live in, because again, sometimes we forget these ancient truths, bottom line is uh, we come into uh, a certain kind of flourishing when we help others. And, and, and it sounds like uh, you're, you're doing some of that yourself. Yeah. You kind of answered like what my next question was going to be, which was sort of like the dial back time, you know, before we started working for these large corporations and doing 
well, a lot of times seems like meaningless type of jobs, um, you know, to a time when we were more tribal and more community oriented and, you know, living closer with nature and closer with each other. I would think during those times we had less of the problems that we have now, especially when it's related to mental illness. Absolutely. Uh, you know, by the way, uh, you know, my condolences to the family of uh, that Miss America who jumped to her death the other day in New York, yeah. uh, just a beautiful young woman uh, and uh, had so much to live for. But that just shows you what isolation can do, loneliness and isolation. Um, if you look even right now uh, at the statistics, uh, there's a, a big global survey that gets done every year from the University of Lancaster in the UK. And they ask, uh, they look at different countries in the world and, and, and they do happiness surveys, happiness scales. And what they find is that the U.S. is now well below 30 in the international happiness yeah. scales. But places like Mozambique, where they live just like you're describing it, you know, they're in a small, authentic, genuine community. Everybody has certain kinds of roles and expectations that can be modified, of course, but people are basically busy contributing to the tribe and to the lives of one another and to their family members. And they're happy. They're happier than we are. Uh, so there's something about the world we live in. Now, um, you know, um, I spent the last two years, like a lot of people, um, kind of tied down to my office here, Zooming with lots of medical students. I teach at a medical school in Stony Brook. Um, you sort of enter the matrix. You know, you, you, at a certain point, psychologically, um, you get disoriented, you get disassociated from the real embodied self and the real beauty of tangible interaction. So I would, we have escalators in our, in our medical school and I would ride the escalators and just say hello to the students and I'd go to the Paneras down below and, and uh, you know, tell a, uh, you know, a cute, tasteful, uplifting joke just because I think human beings need laughter in their communities and if we lose humor and laughter, we lose a lot, and a lot of that's been lost in the last two years. So, so we just need to get back to mirth and community and real interactions, and we'll be much better off for it. But this has been painful. The suicide rates have gone up, especially among adolescents. Um, I mean, already the suicide and anxiety rates are quite high among adolescents. Uh, you know, they, they feel, if, if you look at the literature, lost. They don't have communities. They have, some people call it affluenza. You know, they're just uh, caught up in a completely empty world. They don't have any classical sources of meaning, any of the grand narratives that I grew up with. Uh, uh, and they're just really despondent. And, uh, uh, you know, some people blame this for a lot of the uh, uh, opioid addiction because uh, people look for what the sociologists and the psychiatrists call edge work. They want to do something, even if it's a needle in the arm, it gives them some little sense of meaning, even if it's 
potentially lethal. Mm-hmm. So when you when you couple the, the those circumstances with the last couple of years, um, it's a real problem. And um, uh, so I've you know encountered a number not medical students but a lot of younger people, uh, and I've talked with them about their lives and. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to find a different world. Some of them, I've, I know one person who quit that completely empty job sitting at a desk um, doing uh, mortgages uh, com- without any sense of calling or vocation or any higher purpose. It was just depressing for him. And he went up to Vermont and, and now he's got a little... Uh, a little plot of land. He's farming with his gal friend and uh, very happy. Uh, so there is something about being uh, connected with nature, about about cherishing nature, about learning from nature, uh, about practicing some kind of inner meditational uh, 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 practice, and 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 really. You know, modern society, you know, how are we educated? I mean, basically, people are educated now not to find their calling, not to find their passion, but so much they're educated to fit in, just to fit in, you know, not to rock the boat, just to fit in in some big mega corporate organization and get through life with an occupation, you know, filling space. But what they really need, it's not even really a career, like something that would carry, you know, carry or carry you forward. It's just occupying space, marking your time. And, and what, what happened to the idea of calling that somehow each of us, each, and I believe this, um, Gary, I believe that each person is a wonder of the universe, uh, almost a miracle of creation. I think every person has a set of gifts a unique combination of talents and education should be about getting them in touch with, with those gifts and allowing them to see ways It may be entrepreneurial. It may be in a lot of different ways, but, but to live according to their callings, their gifts that are revealed in their, in their, in their strengths and in their character and in their talents, that's what we should be living and not just uh, in this sort of monotonous uh, way that is uh, is not very fa- uh, satisfying. Wow. So what you said just hit a whole bunch of different chords with me. Um, you know, prior to you know all the life changes I've gone through, I spent 12 years working customer service for Comcast. And <laughs> it was really like one of the most horrible jobs. But what got what what I did like about it though was I actually went into the office and interacted with coworkers. Like like that's where I I felt better because I was interacting with other people. And now that company has gone completely remote. And the idea of having to do that job at home by myself day after day, I would want to kill myself. <laughs> I mean I mean, you talk about taking the meaning out of a job with you know you know, more and more companies are seeing like this opportunity. Oh, we could save a lot of money. We don't have to pay for a building. We don't have to pay for heat. We don't have to pay for all this stuff to house all these people. We just have them work from home. I think that's going to have a long-term negative effect on all these people. And I've seen it in some of my friends already 
that, that are working that way. I agree entirely. Uh, you know, of course, some people will just vote with their feet, uh, you know, uh, if they have an opportunity. Uh, but they do not find that kind of life gratifying. So in the last two years, you know, Stony Brook had many, many COVID patients. We were kind of an epicenter on Long Island and around greater New York. Um, a lot of people did take advantage of the opportunity to work from home, not the doctors themselves. They were doing clinical things, but, you know, all the staff folks and a lot of faculty members, um, they're home and there's, they're zooming in. That's how we're having our department meetings and the like. I actually came into this office literally every day. You know why? Because I couldn't bear the idea of not coming to work in the morning and seeing people. Right. I wanted to see people, and I did. I mean, I actually, with my little mask on, <laughs> however much good it does or doesn't do, I would go uh, up the escalators, and I would, I would spend time with people. I did talk with some of the family members of the COVID patients in the lobbies, and 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 did some ethical consultations about treatment decisions. But I basically was here, and I was, you know, walking up our our. Uh, garage steps into the building and sitting in this office and the students just uh, sporadically would because uh, they're all here anyway because they're doing clinical things they would just pop in my office this became sort of a little bit of a grand central station for you know 300 medical students which was wonderful <clears throat> and the thing is in doing that i mean they really appreciated having a real person to talk to about the deeper struggles that they were having, and a lot of them are having struggles. Um, but we got together and we worked on projects. They, they, actually, some of the students did projects on helping others and altruistic behavior in times of pandemic, because they were out making, the, even, even the ones who weren't clinically active, were making phone calls to various patients in the hospital and just, you know, asking them, is there anything we can do for you? Can we cheer you up? And it was, you know, they, they, they had mm. to make real contact, even if it was just um, um, uh, audio. Uh, but they had to find meaning and purpose and feeling in their life and not be reduced to the matrix. I mean, I, you know, that, that Keanu Reeves, you know, the matrix, psychologically, if, if you're not really interacting with the world, with all the symbolic identifiers that, that, that connect with us neurologically. If you're not hearing uh, familiar voices, smelling familiar smells out and about, even if it's just going into Dunkin' Donuts, you know, you, um, you're moving into a different reality, Gary. It's a different reality. It's the matrix reality. And you're not quite sure, am I real or not? Am I a real human being or am I just a pictal image and 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 that's psychologically uh damaging it puts people in a state that psychiatrists call dissociation you're just not sure of reality you remember the movie Pri saving private ryan mm -hmm. when they get off they get off at omaha beach and you know the all the bullets are decapitating people and there is some individuals just kind of wandering along the sands and their minds are in coney island Remember those scenes. That's dissociation. You're, 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 
you're just you're, you're, you're there, but you're not there. And I think we've been uh, pushed into this world of betwixt and between and lost the real beauty of social interaction. So I, I would not tolerate that myself. I, I just refused and I decided that I was going to become a, a kind of uh, epicenter of social, real social communication. And uh, that's why I probably I'm in my office right now. We don't have to be in our office. We mm -hmm. can, I could be at home, but I'm right here and I'm happy. And I've seen a bunch of students and I went down to my uh, Panera's and I had a, a whole wheat uh, bagel with cream cheese. So you know, life is good. And I'm talking to you on Zoom, but it's not all I'm doing. I'm just not going to be living in the matrix. I refuse. Uh, you know, um, one of the weirdest things that I've gone through recently, too, like with, like with the divorce, you talk about just becoming like a, a, a pixel, you know, like this artificial thing in the, in the matrix. Online dating, weirdest freaking thing ever. Because, you know, so many people, a lot of them now, they don't even really won't even want to meet on in person. They just want this online gratification. And it's like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't even put words to it. But, I mean, I think when, we, when you talk about unhealthy, man. Yeah. <laughs> and this oh, is yeah. pretty much the only way people are meeting anymore. It's not like people meet in person or through friends or at bars or through clubs or anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just radical aloneness. You know, people have been writing books recently about loneliness and they're becoming bestsellers because they're talking about about that in relationship to health. I mean, being uh, happy, gratified, uh, feeling uh, that you're flourishing in life. You do not have that experience when you're dating uh, on a website. <laughs> I mean, it's okay if it connects you with somebody, you know, hopefully somewhat selectively, and then maybe you go out, you know, uh, uh, in, in real life. But this is dehumanizing. It's depersonalizing. It is psychologically devastating. And this is why, I mean, I'll just say this, you know, my wife, uh, a wonderful woman from Kyoto, Japan, been married for almost 40 years. You know, she teaches pre-K at a local elementary school here in Stony Brook. Um, she went into that school every day for the last couple of years. And the kids were really there. I mean, they had an option. Some of them did do stuff online, but most of them came into school. And she felt it was incredibly important to be there for them because, especially in those tender early years of development, to be tied down in front of a, in front of a Zoom screen um, it's not good. I mean, maybe you can get certain kinds of information conveyed in this way, but all of the beauty, the intangibles of real interaction. I mean, I still remember I went to a little Catholic school when I was about first grade, second grade, then I moved to the public school. But, but you know, I still remember the excitement of that, of that nun who asked me in front of this class when I was frightened to read a little bit of Robert Frost, and I read it, and then she said, you, you have a gift. 
you can read beautifully. And, and, and that changed my life, that dynamic interaction. You don't get that stuff online. No. You know, that's real. That's spontaneous and it's real. But it's more important than just conveying info. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also there's, there's something that happens when you get a group of human beings together. Um, you know, for example, um, I don't know. Like, like I've always enjoyed live entertainment more than, than like going to the movies. You know, like I'd rather see a play than go to a movie or I'd rather see a, a live band than go to, than listen to a record because there's an exchange of energy when people are physically together. I mean, but there has to be some, I believe that there's really something to it. There is an exchange of energy, and that energy is a little bit difficult to describe exactly. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people in the history of the world have believed that there really is a kind of spiritual energy. It's biologically grounded, but there's an energy. We, we are all, even the, um, uh, the imaging shows, we are all uh, morphic fields. We are all fields of energy. And when we connect energetically, um, it creates a tremendous sense of community, of support, of, uh, of aspiration, of hope. I, I just believe that, um, no question. So, so I, uh, I, I, I can really understand. I still like the movies, but, you know, um, uh, real music. Uh, I was sorry, by the way, that Meatloaf passed away. Yeah. That was a bummer. He was a good one. <laughs> he was a good one. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And so we, we have this this terrible problem. And the trouble is, I don't know if we can get it back. I don't know if we can get real life back. Uh, maybe we can, but it's not going to happen, Gary. It's not going to happen overnight. And the corporations, I agree totally with what you said earlier, to the extent that they exploit this, um, they're doing us a disservice. Yeah, yeah. This is the best thing that could have happened to them. Because yeah. now, now not only, I mean, they, they don't have to put out the cost to, to have their employees come to work. And then they're also exploiting it by just raising their prices anyway, <laughs> using everything yeah. as an excuse. And it's just a, sort of a mess. Um, and oh, yeah. There were stories in the papers, you know, a couple of months ago about a guy, uh, who uh, fired 900 employees online. I don't know if you saw yeah, that. Yeah, I did hear that one. Unbelievable. And these were, these were people who were actually all in. They were good employees, and, and they had contributed. But for financial reasons, he just decided that he, he, he overhired in the last year or two. So a lot of them, slightly more senior people, uh, were, were just let go. How did they let them go? He didn't even, they didn't even bring them in. Um, you know, or even on on Zoom, talk with them about what was going to happen. He just on Zoom, he said they had a, they, they they scheduled a meeting with these 900 people, and then uh, uh, this guy said, you know, it hurts me more than more than you, but you're all you're all gone. <laughs> and and I mean, what happened? This was before Christmas, by the way, just like. A always. week or two before Christmas. Oh, my God. It's always the before timing. Christmas. They love doing that. Yeah. 
I mean, what a Christmas present. And a lot of these young people, a lot of them are not, you know, they're not senior. They, they got into this organization because it was a bit of a startup and they were, they were interested in, in it. Um, but they've been working on Zoom, strictly on Zoom for like two years. And naturally, I mean, maybe some of them had a little bit of a tailing off in terms of their productivity. But, you know, that's because they're sitting at these desks, literally living an impersonal existence. Yeah. So how do you do management and stimulation in those contexts? It's very difficult. Right. You know, I mean, after the last two years, I am convinced that loneliness kills people. People die from loneliness. People get sick from loneliness. They get diseases. They get mental illness. They get suicidal. Yes. Um, you lose purpose in life. Uh, if it affects you. It has affected me anyway, like in a spiritual way. Um, in so many ways, it, it's just been horrendous. And yet, Nobody really is talking. I mean, I mean, like you say, like people writing books about it, but like if you turn to like the your, these corporations or toward to to the media or anything like that, they they kind of brush it off, <laughs> don't they? Yeah, loneliness does kill. The science around that is overwhelming. Uh, you know, you can just Google around and and you will see this. You know, the human beings are. We are social creatures. We are interdependent creatures. That goes way back to Aristotle, to Thomas Aquinas, and right up to modern social psychology. There's a guy at Harvard who wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And he commented that, you know, we've already lost a lot of what they call social capital. People aren't members of the bowling club or, you know, all kinds of little social organizations. So they're already... There's already a loss of social capital. When you take that problem and exacerbate it with a pandemic, I'm not going to talk about that as an issue, mm -hmm. but when you exacerbate it in a pandemic, um, a tremendous amount is lost. And absolutely, the suicide rates are through the roof. They're through the roof. I mean, sometimes that happens. When I, I came here from Case Medical School in Cleveland, I spent 20 years, it was 13 years ago I came here. And that was when there was a bit of a rash of four or five suicides because some NYU students jumped off one of the dorm roofs. You probably remember that. It was in yeah. the New York Post and all of that. There is a kind of an epidemic uh, uh, quality to suicide. Uh, that's why I have it's no interest contagious. in it. It's contagious. It yeah. is contagious. And Thomas Aquinas, the, the theologian, said, um, you know, that's the main reason against it. So I, I wouldn't kill myself, not because I think it's unnatural or even irrational, but I don't want that to be the legacy that I leave for my kids. I don't right. want to encourage them in any way, shape or form. I'm OK, actually, with suicide for very, very older people who are facing a very grim diagnosis and an intractable progression where they will be mm -hmm. losing their identity and so forth. I can understand that. But in general, you know, and this is what the Greek and Roman philosophers said, like Seneca, you know, suicide's okay for certain people in, in, in uh, old age who are confronting a, a tremendous problem of self-deterioration. 
but for younger people it's so sad and i i my heart was broken you know i i read about this miss america in about three different papers by the way i talk about going out i still like at least two or three times a week go out to this um really cool delicatessen in the village of stony brook mm-hmm. and i sit down and i order a slice of plain pizza you know from the guy and we have some give and take and he makes my pizza he eats up my pizza and i sit I, he brings it to my little table it's not too much tables in there and i'm reading a copy of the new york post and 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 then the daily news about this young woman and you know she had everything to live for but she i think she was on the ninth floor and who knows how isolated she became and a lot of people who were freelancers like the musicians the broadway actors you know who i mean i at least i have a salary thank god for the for the taxpayers of the state of new york <laughs> thank you thank you but um I have a good salary, but if you don't, if you're a freelancer and if you're in the creative arts, which a lot of people in New York are, and you're dependent on getting invited. I mean, I'll tell you, if you write a successful book, Why Good Things Happen to Good People was a very successful book. It made a lot of lists. But one thing, one thing that I determined way back, don't ever quit your day job. Yes. <laughs> you got a good book. <laughs> and because it, it may not last. And, 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 and who knows that young lady who was so wonderful and, and uh, you know she um she may have gotten depressed i have no idea but you know she probably lost all kinds of speaking opportunities i mean i don't get the speaking i used to travel around the country the last time i had a, a really great real time real place speaking opportunity was in indianapolis there were about 400 people there and this epidemic was just getting started so i told this guy a friend of mine who introduced me i said you tell everybody that Dr. Post is a germaphobe, so don't even try to shake his hand. <laughs> and they all cracked up laughing, which was great because it was mirthful, you know. But you you miss the spontaneity. I mean, laughter, real pure laughter. And the science is very good on this. It can change people's attitudes in a millisecond. Yes. It's a miracle, you know. And 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 I that's why I really struggle because of the loss of mirth during the last two years. And, and so I actually, I, I actually go down without any exception every day. And I go down and I, I hang around with the, with the students and I tell little jokes, crazy little jokes mm-hmm. that make everybody laugh. Like what did the fish say when it swam into the wall? Damn. <laughs> what, did, what did the envelope say to the stamp? Stick with me and we'll go places. And people just crack up because they're desperate for a little authentic mirth. Yeah, yeah, that 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 has uh, gone away over the last few years. That is for sure. I mean, it was yeah. going away sort of anyway, but I think the pandemic um, accelerated it. Yeah, and if you're not interacting in in these fuller ways, you're not flourishing. And if you're not flourishing, then the then the question of what am I doing on this earth becomes a little more tangible. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry to say that, but it's it's. I think that's the truth. Yeah, and it gets harder. You know, one of the things like when I was working customer service um, at Comcast, um, you know, a lot of the people that called were elderly people. 
a lot of them were shut-ins. They didn't have access to the outside world. Their their kids stopped paying attention to them. Their family has already been is is dead. Um, so they, the only thing they really have is their television to watch, and yeah. calling the customer service for that television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and having, it was sad. It was really, yeah. really sad. And having hour-long conversations to return some little article of clothing that they order, order off Amazon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that could get very involved, you know, and you could you could actually spend a half a day in a discussion like that. But what else is there to do for a lot of them? And and that, by the way, I have to say, you know, I I don't shop online much. I do do books. I get books online. Yeah. But I don't order clothing online. I actually, we have a, a local Macy's here in uh, Stony Brook in Setauket, Smithtown. And I actually go to the Macy's because I want to interact with people. And I, and I, want, to, I want to cheer them up a little bit. And I'm just my usual, you know, slightly, slightly mirthful, uh, but, but uh, respectful person and I and I, I I care about people and I don't want them to be isolated right so I go to Macy's and I go to I, I go to Panera's and I mm-hmm. go to Dunkin Donuts in the morning purposefully because I just want to say hi to people and let them hear a familiar voice yeah absolutely um you know another one of the things I find too you know um I don't know if you would agree with this, but like the whole idea of, of like elderly, if people retiring, you know, I don't, you know, we, we spend our, all our lives saving all this money for retirement and, and it's, it's, this, this bizarre dream that, that we're going to be like happy old people, right? And yet I think like maybe something like 40% of people die before they reach retirement age. And then once the people that do reach retirement age, Average will live another seven years. Yeah. You know, so you've wasted your entire life Man. for the seven years. And during that seven years, most likely you're going to be miserable because all of a sudden you're alone and you have no purpose. Yeah, so that's absolutely true. And there is a mortality rate associated with retirement. Um, and so I say never retire unless you really, really have to. Like if I was physically limited and my back got completely out of control, then I would consider it. But but we actually did a study in Calgary, which is the southern area of uh, the middle of Canada, um, where they had a lot of people who were successfully engaged with large corporations. There's a lot of oil and stuff that goes on up there. And um, when the men retired, there was about a, you know, five, seven percent suicide rate within a couple of years. And why was that? Well, because they didn't have anything to live for. I mean, their identity was so focused on their role in a corporate hierarchy. That's who they were mm-hmm. that, you know, when they lose that. And they, if they don't have much family support and, uh, and other such activities, what goes on? Well, they, they, they're, they're living on empty and they kill themselves. So what we did in this study was we, we worked with a couple of corporations, big corporations, and we said, look, 
when people get to be like 55 and they say they're going to retire in the next 10 years, give them one afternoon a week to just go out into the community and volunteer. Just give to others in whatever way they want. And let's see what happens. And actually, the suicide rate once they did that, among those individuals went down to almost zero because they had something to live for beyond the corporation. They were doing things with the, you know, the disabled. They were doing things with the, the inter, intergenerational schools. They were doing things for their synagogues and churches. They were involved in the community. So they had a whole new opportunity of valuable purpose when they retired. <clears throat> and um, I think that's quite, quite important. Uh, okay, so this will really make you laugh. We did a little study of, uh, there was a guy who run, who owns a mall in Vancouver, Canada. Okay? Mm. And, you know, I'd written why good things happen to good people. He, he, he wanted to really know, is this true? So we kind of put some ideas together. And what he did was he, this is a mall that had all the big, uh, huge uh, stores, you know, uh -huh. uh, uh, you know, whatever they might be, Target and all those things. And, you know, sometimes when you go to those stores, you, you feel like you're kind of an annoyance. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know, like, hey, I don't need to sell anything to you, buddy. <clears throat> but we said, look, why don't, why don't you get together with managers of these stores? And, and they did this and give everybody just two hours a week with not without getting their paid off, but two hours a week and go out into the community and do the most meaningful helping activities, whether it's a soup kitchen or, you know, whatever it might be, it could be gardening uh, in, in the, in the town center, just do whatever they find meaningful in their community. So they did that. And then after six weeks, okay, they did a measure of the economic productivity of the mall as a whole. And it was up 7%. Wow. And why, why might that be? Because, you know, a, a customer walks in. First of all, the, the people who were involved in this, they suddenly took pride in their, in their stores because their stores are encouraging meaningful volunteer activities, which is kind of cool. But they also took more interest in the customers. So they didn't just feel dissed, you know, uh -huh. you know, dissed when a customer asked them to do something. They actually wanted to be helpful. And and so um, you know, when you separate people from the best side of human nature, you know, there is a very damaging worst side of human nature, and we see it a lot. But don't ever forget the flip side of the coin. There's a flip side of the coin. And what you got to do in corporate leadership and in educational leadership is give people the opportunity to get on that flip side because that's where everything good is located. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, also, you know, one of the things that you've written about, you know, is, um, you know, taking care of like the, the, um, you know, patients with Alzheimer's and dementia and, and things like that. Um, you know, it always makes me sad too. Like I 
both of my parents, when they got sick, I took care of them until they passed away. You know, they, they didn't, you know, want to be put in nursing homes or anything like that. And, uh, but yet, you know, and a lot of cultures don't do what we do either. You know, a lot of cultures, the family will take care of the person until it's time. And then that person makes that decision on whether they want to go or not. We don't, they don't drag on the process endlessly like you're mentioning too. Um, you know, like taking care of my parents until they passed away was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'll ever find anything that, that rewarding again. Um, and, and by the stiffing people in nursing homes, we're denying ourselves that opportunity. It's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that this was such a meaningful experience for you. And, uh, you're totally correct that in the majority of world cultures, uh, nursing homes are not welcome <clears throat> because people feel that there's a special purpose and meaning in the flow of generations. And um, to take a, a parent and put them in a nursing home would be to abandon them. Now, you know, even even here in um, the U.S., I mean, I do, I have a whole consulting program for families of people with dementia of different sorts, mm -hmm. because dementia is a syndrome, a cluster of symptoms, but it's caused by, you know, 50 different conditions, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, you know, concussions, little stroke events in the brain that we don't really detect until we start to lose our memories. So there's a lot of causes. I mean, 100 years ago, syphilis was the major cause of dementia because people weren't living so long. But syphilis can affect the heart and the brain as it progresses. So, um, you know, I, t I, I, for the last 30 years, been devoted to this population. And I, I wrote a book called The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease in 1995 that the British Medical Journal designated a classic of the 20th century, which shocked the hell out of me. But I began that because when I, I, I got to Case Western in 1988 to the medical school, and I spent a day a week, Gary, just going into the communities and providing respite care for family members. Because mm -hmm. we knew that the, so the caregivers on, uh, in general had a little higher level of depression, some of them a lot higher level of depression than the general population because they are under some stress. We did a study of respite. And we found that if you just gave people two to three hours a week to go out to, you know, the store and just, you know, nose around and do some shopping, or if you gave them a little time just to, to hit a movie or a, a play or whatever, that actually brought their depression levels right down to baseline. And, um, and there are other things that, that you can do too. use personalized music. The music and memory movement is very good. Uh, I was on the board of uh, the Brooklyn uh, Memory Disorder Center for a while, and we used uh, Alzheimer poets, people who would come in. You'd have 30 people, you know, in their 70s and 80s, deeply forgetful, not communicating much with one another, if at all. You'd have in the middle of this circle an Alzheimer poet who would read, say, something they could all connect with, like Robert Frost, you know, mm -hmm. The Road Not Taken. And... Lo and behold, uh, if it's done well, 
most of them, I would say 90% of them will chime in for a line or even a whole stanza or a whole poem. They'll get animated. They'll get somatic. They'll liven up. And then uh, afterwards, um, you can actually talk with them if you know how to do it. You know, don't ask open-ended questions like, you know, what do you like for breakfast? Because they'll be on, they'll, they'll be anxious. It puts them under pressure to remember language. But if you ask them, hey, do you like, uh, do you like omelets or post toasties in the morning? They'll answer because you're cueing them uh -huh. by, the, by, by this style. There's a whole literature on how to communicate with, with uh, deeply forgetful people. So I'm a total believer in this. My mother, my grandmother had, they didn't call it Alzheimer's back then, but probably uh, Alzheimer's. It was anyway senile dementia. And even in the, she was in a nursing home uh, on Long Island. And I would go visit her with some frequency and do assisted oral feeding. And even though she was really not communicating verbally much at all in those later months and, and couple of years, um, I had to be open to surprises because sometimes out of nowhere, she'd say, Stevie, how are you doing? <laughs> and, and, and so we have a term for that in, 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 in medicine and it's called paradoxical lucidity. Give you another example of that. This is so 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 the thing for, for, for kids to remember, adult children, is that grandma is not gone, not a shell, not a husk, not dead. Right? I mean, underneath there may be some silence and some communicative chaos, but underneath it all, she's still there. That's what I believe. And I act that way. So <laughs> I went to a nursing home, I spent you know 20 years in Ohio. Uh, in Chardon, Ohio, it's called Heather Hill, with a famous neurologist, Joseph Michael Foley, who'd been in Harvard, and then he came to Case Western Med. And we, we uh, went to this special care unit for about, you know, 20 or so people who were very far along in, in their dementia. And there was a little biosketch, which is important, on the door of this guy named Jim. And um, we read it together. And he had a couple of sons who were in business in Ohio. And then we asked the nurse out in the main room to take us over to Jim. So we go over to Jim and I say, Jim, come with us. We're going to sit down at the table. Well, he kind of, you know, we took his hand and we, we, uh, we brought him to the table and sat him down. And I said, Jim, how are your sons? He couldn't, couldn't respond. That was an open-ended question. But then I asked him, how's Dave and how's John? And then he smiled a little bit. So he, he had more recognition. Then he was passive and quiet for a bit, but he had a twig in his hand that was painted white. And he, this was something that he obviously felt very attached to. And with this huge smile, and if, if joy was electric, Gary, that damn place would have been on fire. He put that twig in my hands. And then he said to me, God is love. So I went to the nurse and I said, what's going on with Jim? Turns out he grew up on a farm, again, in rural Ohio. You know, they went to, a could have been any tradition, but he, they happened to go to a, a church. And he loved his father very much. And his father gave him a chore in the mornings, which was to bring kindlings, kindling in for the fireplace. And like a lot of people with progressive dementia, he, you know, the, 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 the buzzing, confusing world of the moment can be hard to take. So he'd gone back 
to a period that he associated with tender love. And that came from his father. So he was living psychologically mm -hmm. back there, and he was identifying with that white stick. That was his symbol of me. He somehow knew that his identity was still there. And, you know, I, um, I really believe in that. So in my, in my book coming out with Hopkins in, in, in May, uh, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. There's a lot of stuff on paradoxical lucidity. And, and I hope is being open to surprises. That's how I define it, because you can never rule these people out. And um, being inclusive and recognizing that even though they may not have linear rationality, okay, like that's the kind of reason where, okay, I say I'm going to do this in the next half hour and I operationalize it. Mm -hmm. Their linear rationality is limited, but their symbolic rationality is there. So I've seen people uh, with very, at the very, just right before they're passing away with a, with a rosary in their hands saying a prayer. I've seen people who worked on the west side of the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland <laughs> in a steel factory but and dress country and western gripping their cowboy hat even in the shower to the day they died because somehow they knew symbolically that that connected with who they are. Personalized music. Uh, so down the road here, just 20 miles away, there's a guy named Dan Cohen who started a, a movement called Music and Memory. You can actually, you know, your listeners can go to that, musicandmemory.org. And um, he's a social worker, and he realized that you could approach somebody who looks like they're completely gone just to get a husk. You know, you hear those metaphors, shell, empty, gone. And if you approach them with meaningful music from earlier in their life, they'll chime in, they'll get somatic, they'll begin to remember a few things, and that fades. But for the caregivers, like you, you know, like you're, you know, you might be a caregiver for your mom, mm -hmm. um, it's incredibly meaningful because then they, they connect. They realize, hey, what I'm doing is not a waste of my time. Grandma's still there. And NYU started a choir in New York called the Unforgettables. Hmm. Right? What do you think of that? The Unforgettables. And caregivers and people affected by dementia actually get together. They rehearse because it's, it's familiar music. And they do concerts at that, uh, at least they did before COVID, at that St. Peter's Lutheran Church on 50th in Lexington. And it's something to just write home about. It's so exciting. And it brings everybody together. And there are intergenerational schools that were founded by my friend uh, Peter Whitehouse at Case Medical School in Neurology. And they're now all around the country where people who are very deeply forgetful will come and sit with the first and second graders. And they see, they see those coloring books. They, you know, they work together. And believe it or not, the people who are older will sort of come out of themselves. And the kids don't give a damn if they're squirrely or not. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing. And, and, and so we, we, we need to find those opportunities to connect with, with these kinds of people. Last story about this, you know, uh, six years ago, I went to Bangalore, India. And Bangalore, the beautiful airport, by the way, um, that's where the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies is located. And they invited me to, to give a plenary talk at a conference that was based on a language game that I developed, which was deep forgetfulness. 
Don't call them demented because that's just a negative term, a decline from a form of mental state. Let's talk about deep forgetfulness. I mean, we all have our moments. Mm-hmm. Okay. We forget where our car is parked. I had a professor at the U of Chicago who came into our classroom. And he said, does anybody remember if I drove to work today? That was even worse. <laughs> he eventually did become demented. I won't, talk, I won't give his name. But, but you know, um, uh, so I was giving this talk and, and in this beautiful auditorium. And in comes somebody who I thought I recognized in the back of the, of the hall. I squinted, and it was the Dalai Lama, because he hangs around Bangalore a lot. And mm-hmm. those people with their saffron robes, or you see him in the airport left and right. And uh, he sat down. Nobody batted an eye, because I guess they were used to seeing him. <clears throat> and, um, and I said, you know, there's no reason to think less of a person just because they're more forgetful than most of us. There's no reason to think less of a person just because they're more forgetful than most of us. I mean, they can still enjoy the fall leaves. They can still enjoy the smell of apple pie. They can be very creative. You know, they can do art. They can, you know, the the Kooning, the famous abstract expressionist artist in New York, he had Alzheimer's disease for 14 years. He was diagnosed at Cornell Medical. And for 13 and a half years, Believe it or not, he still painted. You know, he was mm-hmm. in a loft in Greenwich Village, and he had a kind of an assistant with him, and 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 he would just put his his brush. He always wore his dungarees because he associated himself with that symbol. They had to figure out how to wash him and so forth. So they had several different sets, <laughs> but he would put his his brush in the paint, and he'd go up to the up to the canvas, and he would paint. And there was a posthumous exhibit of his artwork at the Museum of Modern Art, and it was. Beautiful. It was kind of like Georgia O'Keeffe. It wasn't that for tough, crazy, anxiety-ridden stuff that he used uh-huh. to do when he was always getting in fights with people in front of the Cafe Wa and drinking like a fish. No. He started a complete new tra- track in his artwork. And it was beautiful. You know, it was floral. It was, it was lighter. It was less anxious. And somehow, you know, he'd come into his deeper self, I actually think, when he became more forgetful and less stressed by the world around him. Hmm. So uh, one, one, some of the reviewers said, oh, that was so sad about de Kooning. He was like a shell. He was, there was nothing there. He, he lost all the dynamic of his art. But there was one reviewer, I think, from uh, The New Yorker, and she said, you know, de Kooning, give him credit. The guy had Alzheimer's <laughs> disease for 40 years. And for 13 and a half years, he knew who he was. He knew what he was. He may not have had linear rationality, but he knew what he was, and he knew he was a painter. Hmm. And so that's what we need to focus on is the positive side and not just kind of you know push everyone uh, to the margins. It's interesting. I never thought of it that way, that, that, like, that Alzheimer's or these forms of dementia can also sort of create like a Zen state in the moment. Not, no past, no future. You're just in this particular moment enjoying colors and sounds and sensations. Yeah, so you lose your temporal glue. You, you know, it, it really is living in the now. I mean, if you, if you read that literature, you know, if you're into Zen Buddhism, which I am to some degree, you know, whenever I spend time with the deeply forgetful, I mostly have to live in the now. 
I mean, they don't give a damn about the future, and they may or may not remember their past. I mean, to some degree, they will, and you and you want to try to encourage that. But um, you know, um, they're living in the pure present, mostly. And so, in Japan, my wife's from Kyoto. You know, they're they're caregivers who have written really interesting. Um, biographies about being caregivers. And, and there's one where, you know, in Japan, there's the tatami mat, you know, the, the, the straw mat on the floor, mm-hmm. and you can't wear your shoes inside because you'll get it dirty. And so, so there's this daughter-in-law and her father-in-law had Alzheimer's. And it was early morning, the sun was shining through the windows, and he defecated on the tatami mat. Now that's like, Oh my God, you know, that's incredible. So there she is. She's got a brush and water and soap and she's cleaning this mat as best she can. And then she looks up and she sees her father-in-law with the bright morning sun shining on his face. And he looks completely serene. I mean, she's obviously not serene, but he looks Mm -hmm. completely serene. He's tranquil. He's been freed of chronological time. So he's not going to be anxious about the next moment or blaming himself for the last moment. He's living in the now. And it's a very kind of Zen imagery. But you're right. I mean, we, we, don't, we, we don't necessarily like to see it that way. But... There are elements. And I, I used to know people. I knew one guy in Shaker Heights, Ohio, where I raised our, our kids and we lived for 20 years. It's a suburb of Cleveland. This guy um, was kind of known for being edgy and a little bit selfish in his life. He was diagnosed with uh, dementia and something unfolded in him. He became kind. He became generous. He became altruistic. So he insisted um you know, they would, they, they, would, they would get picked up in a van and then they'd be taken to the Foley Elder Healthcare Center, which is part of the university hospitals. And they had an art program in the mornings. And he would, he would get, he, he insisted on riding in the, uh, in, in the front, in, in the passenger seat. And then he would get out and he would meticulously and with grace, he would help the people in the back seats get out and walk into the elder health center. And when he did that, he was effervescent. Hmm. I mean, he was like reborn through helping. (laughs) Why good things happen. Even, even if you're in that condition, good things can happen. And so, so, you know, to me, um, you know, that's okay. Maybe he had that same idea that the guy in, in the Marriott hotel in Manhattan did. I don't do nothing for nothing. Uh-huh. But when he was demented, he forgot that limiting set of ideas and he discovered a deeper self. So in the giving of self lies the discovery of a deeper self. And it mm. took dementia to get him there. It's interesting. It, it sort of makes like this whole what, what is considered, you know, an aging illness or, or whatever, almost something almost like a spiritual side to it. There is a spiritual side to it. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not trying to be Pollyannish or paint this, you know. In a, right, yeah, it's hard for family and hard for people. It's a difficult thing. And, and, 
But, you know, some people say, well, wait a minute. You know, Grandma, she can't remember my name. Mm -hmm. And then that's like a, a, a huge cutoff point. Like, oh, my God, she's gone. Let me tell you, you know, I forget people's names all the time, Gary. I, I mean, there's like, you know, a thousand people in this medical school I encounter every day. And for me to remember everybody's names is just impossible. <laughs> so, I mean, I remember some, but not all. And I'm, I'm, I find myself uh, openly at times, you know, um, asking people, would you forgive me if I had to ask you your name? Because I know I know your name, but I somehow or another, I need, I need, I need some help. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm Abela or whomever. <laughs> Actually, so many of the students come from different parts of the world now that you got to give a guy like me, you know, uh, born and raised in the U.S. a break because the names get more difficult to remember. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, this this kind of thing, there is a quality of living in the moment. Um, we publish studies in the Alzheimer's journals focus groups about spirituality and the deeply forgetful um, uh, and, um, you know, focus groups with family members and other caregivers and gotten their impressions of how it is that people can still rely on deeply meaningful symbols. It's deeply meaningful. It doesn't have to be churchy or anything. It could be, you know, Cleves cowboy hat. Mm -hmm. Or whatever, you know, but 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 somehow people, you know, could be de Kooning's paintbrush. But somehow that spirituality of connection is still there. But you have to notice it. That's the thing about this. You have to stop. You have to look. And you have to listen. And you have to be open to surprises. You know, and believe it or not, surprises can come. And so, you know, I, I actually coined this term paradoxical lucidity. You know, suddenly it, you can't explain it, but out of nowhere, somebody's, you know, got a little more than a little bit of themselves back. And most caregivers will report that. So uh, I actually did a talk at the Time Center in Manhattan. This is now nine years ago, 10 years ago. Um, it was in an inaugural lecture. That whole building was full of people, including Dr. Ruth, who showed up. And, and uh, I, t I talked about paradoxical lucidity. And then I got emails for days. I mean, there was one woman who said, you know, my mother had Alzheimer's disease. And very toward the end of it, when I thought she would never speak again, she looked at me and she said, Olivia, mind, purpose in the universe. She was a physicist at one of the universities in Boston. Where did that come from, you know? You can say, okay, it was a little bit of neurology, a synapse somehow firing out of the blue, but maybe it suggests that we have to be careful um, about judging these individuals and about assuming that there's nothing there. One of my deepest friends in life, I won't give his name because I can't, but he's a well-known African-American minister, uh, originally from Detroit. His sister passed away about two months ago with Alzheimer's disease. And we were communicating by phone and by text. Uh, and I said, uh, Pastor, I'm sure you're all gathered around your wonderful sister, your older sister. Um, and uh, 
you sometimes think that she's gone. And uh, he, he, he texted back, well, not really, but it can seem that way. And I said, let me give you an image. As far as I'm concerned, she's ahead of us. <laughs> she's already gone down to that Amtrak station in Detroit. And this is an African-American Protestant, you know. And she's got one foot on that train bound for glory. And she's headed for Beulah land, which is the African-American idea for heaven. And mm -hmm. I said, you know, there is something very profound about her state, but don't think she's gone. She may just be, you know, again, ahead of us. Right. And that was so meaningful to him. And he loved the language of deeply forgetful. And, um, and so I want us to be inclusive of these individuals. The Germans describe them as life unworthy of life, useless eaters. And they had a program in 1938, 39, 40 called T4, Tiergestrasse in Munich. And they took about 300,000 people out of asylums, people with developmental disabilities or uh, dementias. And they, they would take them out and freeze them in the hypothermia experiments, let them lie on ice, let them lie in the snow, let them lie in cold freezing water. And then they bring them back into the asylums and they thaw them out, quote unquote, you know, in different temperature ranges and different mediums, air, water. This all they said to figure out at what point it would become futile to send rescue teams into the North Atlantic to try to rescue uh, um, down pilots crazy, right? I mean, total inhumanity. And these were not discriminated against people. These were not Jews. These were not gays. These were not gypsies. These were just Aryans, you know, good <laughs> blue-blooded Aryans, right? So the German people themselves reacted strongly to this. And that hypothermia research was moved by the same principal investigators directly to Dachau and Auschwitz. So you want to remember that the lowest point, I'm a medical ethicist, the lowest point in the history of medicine in terms of gruesome destruction, it didn't actually begin in the death camps, the Nazi death camps. It began because the Nazis had a language game that these people were less than human. They were useless eaters. They were life unworthy of life. And so I wrote this book, um, again, with Johns Hopkins Press, um, to make the point that we have to be very careful about the language we use. We have to think about how we describe these people. And if we're going to enlarge the beloved community that Martin Luther King talked about, we need to think about these fo folks not in purely negative terms, but as deeply forgetful. Hmm. Interesting. I, I like the term uh, paradoxic paradoxical lucidity is interesting because yeah. I was reading a book last night. I think totally unrelated, but it was about like um, out of body experiences and astral projection and stuff like that. And this person had this term called, um, now I'm probably going to forget it. <laughs> <Funny. laughs> That's okay. See, there you go. <laughs> but, but, but um, I don't know, it was like, rather than, than looking at, you know, being awake or asleep was, oh, fluctuating realities. Mm -hmm. So yeah. rather than looking at sleep as, as being unconscious, what you're doing is fluctuating into a different reality. <laughs> it's just like, that's kind of an interesting take on that, you know? 
Well, I think there's something to it. I mean, uh, I mean, this is more this is more about God and love on Route 80, the hidden mystery of human connectedness. But I do talk there about the moments when you wake up in the morning. So that you know the Kabbalistic rabbis, you know the Jewish mystical mm-hmm. rabbis, but also the the Hindus who you know live in the caves north of Delhi. You know, it's pretty universal. They talk about the moment when you first wake up from sleep. So I'm an early riser. I get up about five in the morning. It drives my wife nuts. <laughs> and uh, but we've still been married forty years. So that's all right. Um, but I. Um, I immediately, I meditate for about 10 minutes and I have, you know, a few uh, Hindu style mantras that I like to, like to recite. And, and I feel in those early morning moments that I can connect with whatever higher reality there is in the universe, call it the supreme being, whatever you want to call it, ultimate reality, doesn't matter to me, call it, if you, if you, if you wish God. Right. Um, but I feel closer to that reality. And it's because when you when you wake up, you're coming out of sleep. And when you come out of sleep, you don't really know what time it is. I mean, you've got to look at your clock to figure out what time it is. You mm-hmm. know? So it's OK, it's 510. Right. I mean, you really don't have much chronological sensitivity. And also, you don't really know where you are. At least for a little bit, you got to get oriented. I mean, I'm, I'm, I spent 20 years in Cleveland, and sometimes I'll, you know, I'll still get up in the morning, and I, I can just feel that, hey, I'm still back in Shaker Heights, um, and that actually makes me happy. I like, I like Ohio, um, but um, I like, I like New York too, but I like Ohio a lot, and um, you know, so you're kind of beyond time and time and space and time and place, and when you read all these great literatures about spirituality, the Upanishads for the Hindus, you know, there is the supreme being who is eternal, who is beyond time, who is beyond place, and is characterized by love and creativity, who in something like a big bang brings the universe into existence. So that that supreme being can relate spiritually to other beings who are free and creative and potentially loving loving so that's sort of the you know the the hindu uh, and also the buddhist take on the purpose of life um so so um if you can if you can get up early in the morning but i guess for some people it can happen at other times of the day uh you know and connect with that feeling of being beyond space and time, you've got more of a chance of connecting with with whatever this um, ultimate, pure, unlimited love is. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about it. And I kind of, it kind of sets me up for the rest of the day. Now, I'm, I confess, Gary, I'm still capable of, you know, if, the, if there's a guy in front of me and I'm trying to rush to this university and he un, completely unnecessarily stops at a yellow light i am okay i'm capable of falling full chested on my horn but i try to control it but mm-hmm. i'm not perfect you know but you set up the day and you breathe and you stop you look you, you make a point of visualizing the day and connecting with the people that you'll encounter in forms of love which could be loyalty could be compassion 
could be giving them some creative opportunities, could be just simple helping, it could be forgiveness, it could be a lot of different things. But you want to try to prime your day early in the morning. And that's, this is what the what all the mystical traditions say is that you want to you want to take advantage of that period because it's unique. It is. It is. I've done probably over a hundred episodes just on, on that type of topic. <laughs> oh yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I actually um, there was a great if I have that even here. I don't know if I have it. Uh, there was a great poet um, called the poet of the age of anxiety and his name uh, was W.H. Audney and he was kind of a pre-hippie he spent a lot of time around Oxford in, in the 60s and the students all just wanted to be around him because he had this feeling of spontaneity and, and love and they were they, they just picked it up it was like you were saying earlier you know you can just feel the energy from people. You don't get it on, you know, when you're isolated. And um, so they all clung to him. And um, one day, um, as, he, as he writes in this beautiful uh, book called The Protestant Mystics, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm around a group of people, and I know some of them. Some of them I don't. He said, we weren't drinking. Um, it was late in the afternoon, and suddenly, he said, I felt invaded. That's an interesting word. I felt invaded. I felt somehow that an energy that I could not explain had, had invaded me. And suddenly, these were not just people hanging around a table, you know, uh, in, in one of the greens in Oxford. Um, but every one of them became infinitely precious. And I felt that every one of them was infinitely cherished by a presence in the universe that is higher than our own and that we are a part of. And then he said, later on, I, I asked a few of them if they had had a similar feeling. And a couple of them said, yes. Hmm. And so that can, that can happen, you know, um, I mean, this is a personal story. You know, I, some years ago, this is like now 10 years ago, it's a really wonderful young medical student um, who was a little, little bit despondent. She didn't feel that she was fitting in well to the culture of the other medical students. She came, she was, she was, grew up very poor and basically drove her bike around Queens tutoring kids to support her family. And um, she just, and she was also, uh, you know, deeply Christian and not everybody in medical school is to be sure, some are, uh, but it's a big mix. And so she was just adjusting to this world and she was gonna quit medical school. She showed up at my door, okay? I'm not, I, I'm not a, I don't, you know, I don't have that role officially, but people do show up at the door with the quote unquote spiritual problems and, 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 um, and I just asked her her name and she introduced herself. And, and then I, and she said, I really need to talk to you. And I said, well, I got appointments this afternoon every half hour until seven o'clock. So maybe we could email and meet up later in the week. And I'm, so I'm sitting here at this desk um, right here. And I actually felt a warm 
energy over my right shoulder behind me. And I did, I turned around, I actually turned around and there was nothing to see. I don't see things, you know, but I felt some kind of energy. And somehow I knew that I had to drop everything and just devote the afternoon to this young woman. I did that. You know, I got on my email, I'm, you know, my, my email right here, right. and I emailed people. I was going and I said, you know, let's make a different appointment. And I spent that time with her. So um, I became her mentor. And though she did leave medical school for a year, and just kind of had to take some time to process and figure out her, what her professional identity would be uh, going forward. Um, my wife and I would go into Queens uh, on Northern Boulevard, you know, and um, we would meet with her sometimes every two times a month, at least once a month, and just go out to a, a coffee shop, a restaurant that she liked a lot. Uh, she happened to be Korean. And, um, um, and through that process, she gained insights into her into her calling, she came back to medical school. <clears throat> she actually did her residency at University of Connecticut. Now she's practicing uh, medicine very successfully, is married. And uh, I was texting her this morning to tell the truth. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, that's what I mean by you have to stop, you have to look, you have to listen. Sometimes, I mean, if there is uh, this higher being in the universe, that higher being is always there. And we think we have to have some dramatic experience. Maybe we just need to slow down, you know, step back and, and notice, you know, see the winks, hear the whispers. And, and that's what God and love on Route 80 is about. And I, I, I mean, it starts when I was about 15 years old, but I followed those winks and whispers all my life, even out to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, where <laughs> I took Alchemy 101 with Steve Jobs, who slept on my floor. <laughs> and and uh, I followed that intuitively. And, and if you ask me, did I make my life? No, I, 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 that's, I'd never made my life. I've been pretty successful, and I've taught at a lot of good medical schools because I followed this sense of a higher presence even in the hard times, and there have been hard times, uh, some really crazy ones. Look, this this just just to bring mirth into the world. I came here from Cleveland after 20 years. I loved Cleveland. Some people can't understand that, but I just loved the culture of Cleveland. People were very friendly, and it was a great med school. And I met so many inspiring people, and I came into my own there in ways that I never had before. And... Uh, so I got a call, you know, the Stony Brook wanted me to come here and, 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 and talk about, you know, teach about, you know, humanities and, and the illness experience and being attentive listeners and being humble and communicating well and just being kind to patients. So even the president wanted me to do this because she knew that was a bit of a cultural issue in medicine generally and here too. So... I didn't want to do, I had cold feet. I, I said, no, I'm not going to move from home here in Cleveland to Stony Brook. Um, 
But then she said, Elliot Spitzer. Remember, he was the governor of New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Elliot Spitzer. I've talked with him, and she had. He's going to be very helpful to you because he wants you to start centers for compassionate care across all the medical centers in New York. And I thought that was pretty tempting. So we sold the house and uh, drove across Pennsylvania and Jersey on Route 80, went over the George Washington Bridge. That first night we were in Stony Brook in the Three Village Inn, which is a place where George Washington slept. Of it's course. Of, you know, <laughs> beautiful old wooden stuff, but it also, it's kind of dated. <laughs> and my wife wasn't used to mildew. And my son, who was about 12, was getting texts from his buddies back in Shaker Heights, Ohio, asking him, why wasn't he at soccer practice? <laughs> it was raining like cats and dogs. The thunder was so loud. The lightning was so bright. It was the worst night of my life. I mean, my son and my daughter, I, my, my son and my wife, I have a daughter who's older. But they were yelling at me, Dad, how could you do this to us? And there was nothing I could do. I mean, Gary, what, what the hell could I say? So I went out into the car, into the rain, getting pelted with rain, saturated, got in the car. I, I told him, I said, you know, there's nothing I can do for you, but I will go out and get some pizza. <laughs> so I drove, out, I drove out on 25A through the villages to talk it, and I ran into something called Little Tony's Pizzeria. I go into this place, and there in the foyer is a little newspaper rack. And there's two papers on the rack. The first one is the New York Post. I actually like the New York Post. I like mm -hmm. the headlines because they're very creative, you know. Like when Mike Tyson bit off Holly Fields' ear, it was ER responsible, irresponsible. I mean, it's incredible, you know. Um, <clears throat> they pay a lot of money to get those things. But I, I, so I, I was there, and, and the, the only picture on the front page, you know, the classic New York Post front page, was Elliot Spitzer in his underwear. And it said, Governor, no more. <clears throat> and he apparently had been found with questionable company in some hotel in New York, uh, even on taxpayer money, apparently. So he was gone and Patterson was arising, which was okay. But I realized to myself, you know, I sold the house, I came across Route 80, put my family through all this stuff, and they're still back there and three villages yelling and screaming at me in their hearts. And I said, you know, this isn't going to work out. I'm not going to get Governor Spitzer's not going to help me out, which of course he could. You know? That was a really bleak moment, you know, and this is why, you know, so good things happen to good people, right? So then I was a great friend of Sir John Templeton, who was an investor of Templeton Funds, and we knew each other for many years. Um, and uh, he had, he had, he had, uh, faxed me, he didn't email, but he faxed me from Lyford Key in the Bahamas in the summer of 2000 and said, Stephen, we need to start a research project, not on any disease state, but just on the greatest human assets, like unselfish, fulfilling love. And um, not the love of designer genes or the love of chocolate, but the love that really reaches out to support the security and happiness of those around us. So I faxed back, Sir John, I'm in my office at Case Medical School. Sir John, what should we call this? He faxes back, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. 
which is okay with me, mm-hmm. but I'm like in a medical school and I'm doing a lot of work on, you know, Alzheimer's disease and even Alzheimer's genetics. And I'm just kind of wondering how my colleagues are going to handle that. You know, so effects back. Sir John, it's a great idea. Maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism. Because altruism is a sciencey word. It's a little dry. Right. You know? <laughs> and biologists like it. They could talk about bees, you know, when they sting people dying from altruism. <laughs> so, so, um, so I faxed back that, that I said, John, can we call it the Institute for Creative Altruism? He said, he faxed back, no, I think unlimited love up to $8.9 million. Now, Gary, I don't know how your listening audience would have responded to that, but I responded like this. I faxed back to Sir John, Sir John, I love that language. It jumps right off the page. And the institute. So you can go to the if you go if you Google www.unlimitedloveresearch.com. That's the Unlimited Love Institute, and we funded you know hundreds of studies around the world. And Sir John also faxed me. He said, "Don't spend all that money on mere human love." <laughs> he said, "Spend at least half of it on the love that made humans." <laughs> that's a challenge you know and 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 we actually in, in interesting ways we did we, we we tried to do that through surveys and people's experiences of that love um wrote a book with oxford called the heart of religion about that topic but sir john you know okay so here's sir john he's now he's in life for key in the bahamas and and he's dying and his son jack Templeton, who was a physician and a, a and a trauma surgeon at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP, famous place. Mm-hmm. He calls me out of the blue on my, I had a flip phone at the time. And and he says, dad is dying. And I said, oh no, that's so terrible. Um, but he's got a request for you. I said, anything, you know, because I want to be loyal to Sir John. And he said, Sir John wants you to write a book that he's not going to have time to write because he's dying. And so I said, well, did he give you a title? And Jack said, yeah, he gave me a title. What was it? Ultimate reality is unlimited love. <laughs> so I paused for a minute and I said, maybe you could go back to, your, to dad and ask him, could we make it into a question? So Jack came back a couple minutes later and he said, yeah, dad said it's okay. Is ultimate reality unlimited love? So if you Google with the Templeton Press, I wrote a book, is ultimate reality unlimited love question mark? (laughs) (laughs) With a forward by Jack Templeton and his physician wife, Pina, who was was an uh, anesthesiologist at CHOP as well. They're both passed away now. Um, But Sir John didn't just think of love as a human proposition, but he really felt that that although human love is meaningful, there is this underlying love in the universe. And it's always there um, bringing reality into being constantly. And he gave his Templeton Prize to many physicists who believed this and this sort of divine energy and divine mind. And Sir John was the greatest man I ever, 
I ever had the honor to meet and know and work with. That's fantastic. And, and I agree with that. That's one of the reasons I'm a little bit obsessed with all the out-of-body experience stuff because I've had one. And that's what it felt like to me when I was, you know, out there because I had like a, a seizure and I was just, it just felt amazing. Like I didn't want to come back to, to like oh, this boy. particular reality. And after now, like, you know, like, I, I don't know, I've interviewed hundreds of people that have had all types of experiences, near death, out-of-body stuff with hallucinogenics, you name it. And they all share the same thing. It's incredible. Complete tranquility. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so there's a guy named Sam Parnia, who's at NYU Langone. He's a physician from England, and he's written some best-selling books about this topic. And so uh, he had been at Stony Brook, uh, and then several years ago he moved to NYU. Um, he, he heads... Uh, cardiac resuscitation. So he has these incredible studies and they're very reliable. Uh, actually, we have an I have an article as a co-author with him coming out in the um, annals of the New York Academy of Sciences in the next six months sometime. But, you know, people, you know, we asked people, what did they experience? And it wasn't just bright light stuff because that's, yeah. that's okay, but it was more you know, when when you came when you when you when you awakened from this experience, how did you feel about the world around you? And a lot of them said, "Well, I felt kinder. I I, I felt that I could love people more unconditionally. I felt that I could be more forgiving. I felt that I could have a nobility of purpose." Is the kind of thing they said. They didn't all say this. But quite a few of them did. So somehow, and, and you know, and they can be brought back from um, um, heart cessation now at much longer periods of time. It can be even three, four, five minutes. In some cases, ten minutes. You know, so they wherever they've been, they come back and 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 they have a little story to tell about spiritual transformation. So that's what this article is about. If you email me, you know, I'll send it to you when it comes out as a link. Yeah, definitely. But it's very, it's very impressive. Wow. Yeah, there's definitely something to it. It's, it's an incredible. And that's why that's how my podcast started was because of that experience, you know. And and I was kind of like, you know, what what makes sense to me is like rather than people being told that their spirituality exists, it's like you can experiment and experience it yourself. You don't really have to go around convincing people of anything when people can have these experiences. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot we don't understand. And, you know, um, one of the things I enjoy in my life <laughs> is being in a hyper-scientific environment where most people are complete skeptics about these kinds of things. But being able to write a book like God and Love on Route 80 <laughs> you know, and so what? So, so I, and, and I kind of curious. You know, when I that, that came out, I was wondering how would people were, would they fire me? <laughs> you know, I mean, that was an option, <laughs> but actually not at all. I mean, the, the people have been interested in it, and and they'll come by here and they'll say, you know, I had an incredible experience of synchronicity, and I know it wasn't just normal cause and effect was something in this universe that 
brought me together with the right person at the right time in the right moment in the right way and I just felt that they were there for a special reason and and they and the causality came from some being in the universe that cherishes us much more than we could ever imagine and uh and so I enjoy those kinds of conversations by the way so I had the, you know, the, the, in the news, in, we're getting that back to the pizza. <laughs> so, I, so I had Spitzer and then I had this article in the Free Village Herald, which was called Unlimited Love Comes to Stony Brook. Blew my mind. Some cub reporter had gone online and figured out that I'd done Oz and Oprah and different things. And she even interviewed the dean of this medical school at the time, who was a pediatric transplant surgeon. And so she actually asked, what did they say? He, he said, well, we didn't really hire him to study unlimited love, but we think he can do a lot of good things. <laughs> he talked <laughs> to my department chair. And she said the same stuff. So I immediately respected Stony Brook more than any place else I'd been on earth. <clears throat> um, and so the first, the first day I came to work, I'm going up the escalator. And there's a guy standing at the top and he looks like Mr. Clean. You know, he's got his arms folded and he's kind of burly. And he seems to be looking at me and I, and, and I look up and, I, and when I get closer. I say, sir, um, do you, do you know me? Do I know you? And he said, he was Eastern European. He's still here. He's a friend, you know, mm-hmm. are you Dr. Post? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And he said, are you going to save us? <laughs> so, oh my God. So I said, well, I'm not sure of that, but I'll do my best. So he'd obviously read the Three Village Herald. And uh, that was a riot. Turns out to be a pretty good guy. Um, and I called, I called the president of the university, Shirley Kenny, and I said, Shirley, um, did you see that article uh, in the Three Village Herald? And she said, yeah, by the way, I'm sorry, Governor Spitzer is not going to be helping you out. <laughs> I said, well, but as far as the Herald went, did you get any response? And she said, yeah, I got phone calls from emeritus professors. And I said, really? Well, what did they say? Well, she said they were mostly male emeritus professors. And they asked me, what kind of love are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, it was hilarious. So I laughed that one up. But the message when I came here to Stony Brook, which is my last word for all your listeners, is there are going to be moments in life when things don't look too good. They look pretty dark. And they look dark to me that night in the thunderstorm. But you have to expand the canvas with kindness. Just stick with kindness. Good things ultimately do happen to good people in most cases in any kind of functional environment. And just continue to build and build. It's like a Jackson Pollock painting. It started out a blotch of paint on the ground, didn't look like much. But by the time he's covered it with all these beautiful energetic lines, almost psychedelic lines, you know, the whole thing is a work of beauty. And your life can be like that too, but don't ever quit on the power of love. Awesome. Great message. And um, thank you for taking the time to be on today. This was a fun interview. Fun for me too. <laughs> you let me run on. <laughs> you let me go on. Um, before we wrap it up, though, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? 
Well, if you go to my web personal website, it's Stephen with a PH. Okay, that's the Irish way. Uh, Stephen G, no period, just Stephen G post.com. And, um, you know, on the front page, we've got um, why good things happen to good people. And, um, and then the book coming out right about now with Johns Hopkins Press, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. There's also God and Love on Route 80 at the bottom, but you can order it through that. <clears throat> but also just for, for pure joy, go to the Institute website at unlimitedloveinstitute.org because there's a lot of cool stuff there. And uh, yeah, we keep, we keep making progress and somehow we're gonna come through this particular period of time we were talking about, the pandemic period. And I remain very hopeful about, about the future because while it was the worst of times, to some degree, it's also the best of times if we make the most of it. I agree. I completely agree. Well, I will post those links in the notes to this episode so my listeners can find you, buy your books, check you out. I'll also give you my email. Well, yeah, yeah. So when I, um, the article comes out, I definitely want to read it. Yeah, good. And uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. And just hang on for one moment, and I'm going to play the outro. Okay, great. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.